You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining, and this week I'm joined by Zoltan Glasso of Z9 Machining. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, good to be here. So for those who don't follow you on Instagram, where can they find you? What does Z9 do? All the good stuff. Yeah, uh, I'm really just on Instagram at Z9 Machining. I have a website as well, z9machining.com. That's really how you can get a hold of me. My company is just a job shop. I started in 2018. Yeah. What kind of products do you, like what uh, customers do you usually service? Is there like a common theme, you know, automotive or electrical or something like that? Yeah. So pretty much all my customers are in the Pittsburgh area. And most of the work I do is robotics related or autonomous cars, some uh, uh, project car stuff, you know, custom car stuff. But there is just really a lot of robotic stuff happening in Pittsburgh. And that's just the kind of work that I've done. I've also done stuff for some aerospace companies. I have some parts that are going to the moon, which is pretty cool. But that's awesome. By and large, it's robotic stuff. Okay. Very cool. Well, let's get into your backstory then. How did you get to owning your own company and, you know, a gorgeous C250 that I'm very envious of? <laughs> how did you get to where you are? So where should I start? How far back should I go? As far back as you want. All right. Uh, so when I was a kid, uh, my dad was always the kind of person who would be working on things fixing things. He he worked for himself, so he had a, a bunch of equipment and tools that he would use and repair as necessary. Uh, so I kind of grew up in that environment. Whenever I was in middle school, I did FLL, which is first Lego league, and then in high school, FRC, which is the first robotics competition. And that was kind of my first uh, exposure to actually making stuff. Uh, granted, that was all like hand tools and using wood saws to cut aluminum and that kind of thing. Very sketchy looking back at it now. But that kind of set me on to engineering. And one day I was touring the University of Pittsburgh and came across the Formula student car there. And I was like, wow, that thing's pretty cool looking. Uh, I pretty much instantly knew at that point that I had to get involved with that. And the same day I actually walked into the University of Pittsburgh machine shop uh, for the engineering school, which is where they make most of the parts for that car. And you know, that was the first time I had set foot in the machine shop. And again, I instantly knew, like, all right, this is this is really cool. This is, I want to get involved. I want to learn how to do this stuff. So my first semester as an engineering student, I started working in the shop there. And the guy that, run that runs that shop, Andy Holmes, as well as uh, a senior member of the race team, uh, John Conturo, both kind of taught me how to machine. One during the day, one at night, making race car parts. So yeah, I was there for five years uh, in that shop. They've got uh, a couple Haas machines, some manual equipment, a really nice uh, laser cutter. It's a 400 watt laser cutter, so it can cut like eighth inch steel and Pretty much anything else you want to throw at it. Yeah, I'd spent a ton of time uh, sort of learning how to run CNC machines there. Right? Uh, the race car requires just 
an enormous amount of parts and uh you know it's kind of being done by people who really don't know what they're doing yet you know i was <laughs> uh, started running the cnc as a sophomore in college and like you're not efficient things take forever uh, i was using camworks to start and that software is just brutal pretty quickly i had found something else which was hsm works at the time uh inside SolidWorks. And that was a major improvement. In late 2017, when I was, uh, I guess, technically a junior in college, uh, I convinced my dad to sort of section off a part of the building that he used for his stuff and shove a CNC mill in there. And that was a Hardinge Bridgeport GX1000 OSP, a used machine. Basically like the cheapest Okuma mill you could get. And it's not even not even made by Okuma, but it has an Okuma control, Okuma uh, Okuma servos, and you know, it's sort of the best bang for your buck you can get. Because I didn't want a Haas really, and I know I didn't want anything with a Fanet control, so that was kind of what I found that wasn't those things. That's cool. I, I had no idea that Akuma gave out their control at all. Like I had assumed it was bespoke to Akuma. I think the reason that machine exists is because the big shops that were like all Okuma, you know, running horizontals and five axes and whatever, they wanted to stick with that control, but they wanted like a cheap beater three axis machine. And I don't know how expensive Okuma's, uh, current three-axis machines are, but I guess this one was cheaper, and uh, you know, they did it for a few years. As far as like the controls on that machine go, awesome. Like, super fast, never skipped a beat. Uh, the coolant system on that machine was not well designed, though. Ooh. Uh, yeah, and uh, I came back to a flooded shop more than once, <laughs> or I'd be standing there and suddenly there'd be water coming out from, or coolant <laughs> coming out from underneath the machine. Yeah, the, the way the chip conveyor dumps out, there's two pretty small baskets uh, on the left and right side of the machine that fill up with all of the like chips that slip past the chip conveyor pretty quickly. So that was, that was pretty annoying. Also, the way they integrated the ATC was not great and recovering it from a ATC error was a challenge especially the first time <laughs> uh, how so like what made the integration so awkward so uh, apparently the way Okuma does their ATCs is everything is like servo controlled and intelligent but this hardinge machine was not it was just sort of the uh what do you call it, like cam-driven, one-motor-does-everything type. Yeah. So having the Okuma Control handle that, I guess, just didn't translate well. So you had to, like, go in and change parameters to get it to realize where it was and reset everything, and sometimes it would just drop the tool while you were doing that because it was in, like, the wrong step of the process. That sounds very, yeah. very fanic. 
of that machine. Yeah, really? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, recovering any Fanuc uh tool changer that I've ever done is like that. You have to like set a few well, it, it depends on the machine, I guess. Like some Matsuras have what they call handyman, which is like it'll show you all the sensors and the positions of them and kind of let you step through stuff, but you still have to go in and like change a keep relay to go to like maintenance mode or something like that and then recover it step by step versus you know a lot of modern machines just do it for you they're like oh hold this button hit reset and it'll like take care of itself yeah the hermley does it really well (laughs) like (laughs) i'm sure you just you just hit go basically and it's just like all right we will we will fix this for you so Um, you had this machine and you were building your business how did you did you grow it I, I guess what are the steps that led you to buying such an amazing, you know, second machine? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, I started in 2018 with just that machine. Later that year, I bought a CNC lathe and a manual mill and an auction. It was a, I don't know, early '90s Okuma LB15. And I actually have a friend who lives in Pittsburgh who's like, a, he used to be a service tech. For Okuma, so he like knows these machines in and out, which is kind of why I was okay with buying such an old machine because if something broke, he'd be able to fix it or at least right. tell me how to fix it. And that was a great deal on that machine. I think I paid around four thousand dollars for the for the oh, lathe. Oh wow, that's um, killer! Pretty good deal on the mill too, about two thousand dollars for a an MTB forty. It's a Shizuka VHR, which I had never heard of. Boxways. Came with a DRO, which didn't work, unfortunately. Still think it was probably a pretty good deal. Um, I think uh, Drew from DrewFab, that's his. He CNC converted his, but I think his is a oh, yeah? Shizoka. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Who? Fireball Tool also recently bought one. Oh, really? Uh, I don't know. He's, I don't. Yeah, he's uh, more of a fabricator, but. I watch all his YouTube videos. Okay. He, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I love, like, there's so much like feeling and like tribal knowledge that I think comes down through machining. They're like, Oh, don't like his whole, uh, filing backwards thing. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I love that he's going out and proving things rather than just being yeah. like, Oh, well, you know, my mentor told me not to do that. So that's how I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he makes really good content for sure. So yeah, with those couple of machines, I kind of just made parts. Uh, as much as I could. And unfortunately, my dad actually passed away uh, the early 2019. I'm sorry um, to hear that. Yeah. But so in that time, you know, I was just, I was actually still in school. Right? I said I, I started the business as a sophomore. I was taking two to three classes a semester, which gave me enough time to like run a business, right? Uh, and make parts. Honestly, that was like, that was like the best decision I made to not take a full course load for the last couple of years. Uh, so I could make parts, work on the race car stuff, and still finish out school, which worked out really well. I really, I don't have much to say about growing my business. I don't advertise. I don't really look for new customers. I just seem to get people that reach out because know me or my friends recommended me or some of the local shops recommended me and I seem to be doing pretty well uh, I don't really have any time to like take on more work you know I have to turn customers away now so 
it's a good place to be for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about buying your Hermla then. How did you make that decision to jump into five axis? Why that machine? You know, all, all of the decision making that went into that purchase. Cause that's not a, I, I mean, I'm in a, maybe a, a pre version of that where I'm now starting to look at five axis and looking into machines and, you know, it's not a, a insignificant investment into a machine either. So for sure. Went into all of that. Yeah. So my first sort of taste of five axis machining was uh, on a race car part, the uprights, which are notably one of the more challenging parts you have to make on formula student car. And I did most of the work on my three axis machine at the time, but there's a bunch of holes at odd angles and a couple Sort of finishing features that would have just been a ton of setups uh, or like set it up on the manual mill with like really janky work holding and do everything but if you do that it's probably not going to be super accurate uh, so i asked uh, my friend at contouro prototyping who used to be on the race team uh, if i could finish those parts on his machine he was like yeah you know, uh, it was a, I think a Haas with a, was it TR-160 trunnion? So I made a little mounting fixture to locate it off the bearing center and sort of programmed that, which was my first experience uh, programming 5-axis. I had switched to Fusion at that point as well. Uh, basically, once I graduated, I switched to Fusion because it, I don't know, I tried it and it was just like the... The programming side of things was just so much more ahead of HSM Works. They basically seem to have given up on updating HSM Works too. Yeah. So, but that's okay. So that was my first taste of five-axis machining, and it wasn't long after that that I realized, like, all right, my next machine really needs to be a five-axis because it will sort of completely change the game when it comes to making parts. Just because you don't have to deal with extra setups, you can be way more accurate. Uh, you know, you can dump, this is the same thing that everybody says, right? You can put uh, a lot more machine time into one operation rather than breaking it up so you can walk away from the machine for longer. My machine is running right now, too. <laughs> That's epic. Cool. So, yeah, I basically decided that my next machine was going to be a 5-axis, and I had no idea what at the time. Same as before, I knew I didn't want to get a Haas. I think Haas makes really good three-axis machines, but it seems like uh, their five-axis stuff just isn't quite there when it comes to precision. I think their website quotes like two thousandths of deviation per side if you tilt from like A90 to A-90, right? It's like, that just seems very poor. So... Once you sort of step away from Haas, uh, you're looking at like sort of the next tier of five axis machines in my mind was like Mazak, Usan, maybe Okuma with their Genos machine. Yeah, the 460V. Uh, yep, the 460V. Dusan, it was the DVF 5000. I forget what the Mazak was, but they had a similar one, you know, similar sort of entry-level five-axis machine. And I hadn't really made up my mind at that point. I wasn't really shopping that hard. Uh, but one day, I decided I was going to take a trip up to Wisconsin to 
by a track bike. Uh, and it was, was going to be like a long weekend. So I was like, all right, if I'm going to drive 13 hours, I should find something else to do in Wisconsin because that's a long drive. So I looked and it turns out that Hermley has their headquarters in Milwaukee, which was right on the way. So I stopped there on my way back and talked to Gunther, who I believe is the U.S. CTO. I could be getting that wrong. Uh, he's very, you know, one of the higher-ups at Hermley. And he sort of just spent close to two hours sort of talking about... Uh, the C250 that I now owned, it was at the time in their showroom. It was a demo machine uh, for a particular uh, space company that I'm sure everybody has heard of. <laughs> but yeah, so he sort of like, you know, showed me all around this machine, uh, you know, explained, you know, sort of introduced me to Hermley as a company in general and their mindset and what they do and why their machines are, you know, are what they are. And he basically, I'd say he convinced me to buy the machine at that point. So it was, I think I uh, sent them an email before I got back to Pittsburgh saying I want to buy that machine, uh, which was definitely like a risk. But uh, I know I did it. <laughs> so <laughs> sort of no going back at that point. So how about Is tooling up? Question? You know, how, how was finding tool holders? You know, kind of stepping into HSK, all of that. How, how did yep. that go? So uh, my last machine was BT40. So this machine is HSK 63A. So no, no, no shared tool holders, of course. Right. I had, I was pretty sure I wanted to go with either ShrinkFit or. Uh, what is it? RegoFix TG as sort of my primary holder. I ended up going with ShrinkFit. I like it. I basically just placed like one bulk order uh, of Technics brand holders. They seem to have like a pretty good selection of a variety of holders, uh, not just ShrinkFit as well. They had, you know, Sort of different length ER32 and ER16 holders, which I bought a few of. I bought their heat shrink machine as well, one of the smaller ones. It doesn't have like water cooling or anything like that, but it doesn't seem to take that long. Just a few minutes to heat up and cool a holder to the point where you can touch it anyway. So yeah, I pretty much just went all heat shrink right from the start, and I would do it again. I, I like it. T tooling up wasn't too big of a challenge. It was just another uh, big check to write. I probably bought like I want to say 35 holders at the start, and I've probably okay. bought another 20 more since then. Okay. Yeah. And then what about software? Are you still using Fusion? I think I am, you... I am still using Fusion. That's awesome. Um, it it does a really good job. I think the only place where Fusion struggles is the simultaneous stuff. Like it, you know, like I know they're supposed to be able to do some good simul simultaneous stuff with steep and shallow. I can never get it to, to work on like the first try. You always have to, you know, futz with it or do the from point or to point to get it to actually avoid, you know, 
pool holder collisions and that kind of thing. All of the other options are really expensive. I think if I was going to upgrade my cam system, it would either be uh, Autodesk's Power Mill or Hypermill, but I haven't really considered that yet. Okay. And then did you buy simulation software? I bought Camplete with the machine. Okay. Yep. Uh, and uh, I think there was a few. There was a Fusion Post for Camplete, I believe, or they they gave me one. I think it was just part of the standard Fusion Posts. And basically, so anytime I'm doing anything that has like tilting, I'll do a Camplete Camplete simulation. But if I'm just doing sort of a basic, you know, three-axis operation, I'll just go right out of Fusion because the machine's going to crash. It's not going to be because uh, the simulation missed something. It's going to be because I fat-fingered an offset or right. uh, something like that, which I did do, unfortunately. Oh, so, no. So you... Yeah. Uh... I did crash the Hermley once. Uh, I did post about it on Instagram, too. It wasn't that bad. It was a relatively slow Z-axis plunge, probably at like 25% rapid, but it did uh, deform... They're aluminum bushings. If you don't know what those are, Hermlays have, uh, in most of their spindles, a set of sort of crush washers. And if you apply too much Z-axis load, it will deform those crush washers rather than damaging the bearings. So that's what I did. It was a few thousand dollar service call to have a tech come out and fix it. Uh, and I was... Back in operation in a few days. Hey, better than a 20 grand service call for a new spindle or yep. whatever. <laughs> yep. And honestly, if I ever do it again, I'd probably be confident in replacing them myself. It's not super complicated. The only thing I wouldn't be able to do is do the geometry checks because they have a like a massive granite square and a couple other tools that I don't have. But as far as just replacing the bushings, pretty straightforward. Okay. And then what options did you get on your C250? And are there any that you wish you had bought? Yep. So my, uh, I mentioned before this was a demo machine. So I did not have uh, the ability to add options or at least uh, anything that was fact factory installable, which the only option I wish I had is a factory install option. Actually, no, they do do it in the field. It's just very expensive. But... I think pretty much all of their machines come pretty well optioned out. My machine has a laser tool setter, uh, obviously a probe, Renishaw probe, factory mist collector, uh, 40 bar high pressure coolant wow. tank and unit, the 18,000 RPM spindle. I think they also have a 15,000. Um, yeah, they do. I'm not really sure what else would be an option. Like I said, it kind of came as it was. The only thing that it doesn't have is through table uh, hydraulics and air for automation, which uh, I would definitely love to have that in case I ever wanted to automate this machine in the future. But I think the f the field install is like really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so it probably just makes sense to, to sell this machine and buy a new one if I ever go that route. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that's one of the reasons we we're looking at it is I love how, how well Hermley does with building their own automation solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I 
really would love to get the uh, HS Flex set up at some point in the future. Uh, yeah. That would that would be really nice. <laughs> well, that's really cool. It sounds like it's been, you know, definitely a, a big jump off the deep end, but it sounds like it was well worth it. Yeah, it's it's definitely paid off. Uh, it's it, like I never have come back to cooling on the floor and like the machine just works. Uh, I have no complaints whatsoever. Actually, I have one complaint. You can't turn on option stop whenever you want. What? That's a, a hide and hide thing. Apparently. Really? Yeah, you have to do it. Uh, there's like one line of code uh, before every tool change where you can turn on or off option stop. It's a little weird to get used to. That's bizarre. Um, so Were there any like, other things that you you didn't expect going to Heidenhain from OSP? Thing with Heidenhain is if you're programming right on the control, you it, it like it, you don't just type in code, right? You're not just like typing in code on a keyboard. You're like going through and selecting every little thing that you want. Uh which means sometimes it's hard to find what you want, but also uh, you can't mess up the code. Like you'll never have code that is has an error in it because it limits you to only what it will run. Does that make sense? Oh, that's interesting. So you're not actually. It's kind of like a a hybrid between writing code and convent or uh, conversational. It's definitely not conversational. Like you're still like picking out the codes to run. But it's just, uh, you know, it sort of figures out all of the, uh, uh, what's, uh, just, it figures out all of the actual codes for you, even though you're just going through and selecting different options and things. But you're not like, at least I've never done conversational type where you're like defining a path or, or something like that. You know, okay. you're still typing in like you'd use like an L movement to go to a position. That's all pretty much the same. Yeah, I didn't explain that very well. I don't really hand code that often though. So really it's just the optional stop thing. <laughs> okay. And then what about handling tools and tools, tool offsets and things like that? It, was it a big step from OSP or is it kind of normal? Yeah. So my last mill didn't have probing of any sort. So oh I would have to, you know, I had the uh, sort of table mount indicator set up uh, mm -hmm. that worked that worked pretty well but the the hermley uh is like amazing because anytime you put a tool in the spindle it knows that it needs to be touched off the next time that tool gets called so you pretty much don't have to think about it uh, all you have to do is uh, type in a couple things whenever you're loading the tool itself like a rough length estimate uh, and that sort of thing handles the rest, which is really nice. My, uh, all of my tools, when they come out of the machine, uh, I put a little plastic label on them with the tool number. And anytime I need to like put that same tool back, I can just say, you know, load tool one and it will, it, you know, it knows where it is. It calls it up, touches it off whenever you need it. And it's fine. You know, it's, it's, uh, John Grimsmo did something similar on his Kern, where he enters like 999 into one of the values, and that tells his machine to touch off that tool, but Hermelay just does it automatically, which is oh, really nice. That's really interesting. So what about the tool 
Because it's what, 32 or 36 tools? Uh, 36, I want to say. So has that been limiting at all? Because we talked over DM about this, but that's been the only thing looking at a C250 that has me like, I guess, not nervous. But like I've used, I've got 21 tools, 22 in the F, and I've used yeah. 21 tools on parts yeah. that are three axis before. And it's like, yeah. I could very easily see using 36 tools on a five axis part. Yeah, I've never had a part that needs more than 36 tools. Okay. A, try to leave as many standard tools in there as possible. Like I have a bunch of thread mills I try to leave in there. Uh, you know, normal, like quarter inch, half inch, all that kind of stuff. I try not to take those out. Sometimes I have to take those out, especially if I'm doing like a steel or a stainless or a titanium part. It's none of my standard tools. They're all my standard tools are aluminum stuff. It hasn't been a huge issue because the way they handle offsets and because I have enough holders, I can just leave stuff set up. It, it's really fast to just say, like, pull these tools out. You sort of walk behind the machine, open up the door, pull it out, close the door. It rotates. You open up the door, pull the next one out, close it. You know, it's a great, uh, it's a great tool system. So if that's, you know, what's holding you back, I would say, uh, you know, it's not a huge deal. Do I wish I had more? Uh, of course. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, as far as compromises go, I think that's a pretty small one. Okay. And then what about the, it has an integrated conveyor, right? Uh, what do you mean when you say integrated? Or I guess an included conveyor. Yeah. Right? Uh, it, it came with one. I'm not sure if that's an option, but I imagine most of them will have a, a conveyor. My, mine is a scraper type. Okay. Uh, so it kind of scrapes the chips off the bottom of the, you know, trough as opposed to sort of just a conveyor type where it's moving it along the top of the right steel belt so coming from a bad conveyor are you happy with this one yeah yeah it works really well i don't think i don't think it i don't think it's possible for this machine to overflow because of chip buildup. the way the coolant system works on my machine and i imagine this is pretty standard is there's I want to say it's probably about 75 gallons in a tank that sits right below the chip conveyor. And all the coolant dumps right into there from the machine. There's a float sensor. And once that tank fills up, a pump pumps it from that tank into the high-pressure coolant tank through a paper band. And most of the coolant is sitting in... It's probably like another 125 gallons or so in that tank. And then there's two more pumps on that, one for the standard flood and one for the high-pressure through spindle. So like the, the coolant system, I think, is pretty well designed, and uh, I haven't had any issues. I guess if that sensor fails, it's just going to flood, but right. assuming that sensor doesn't fail, it's not going to flood. <laughs> okay, that's cool. So when you got the Hermley, because I know you got rid of your other mill, right? Yeah. Uh, basically, as soon as I got the Hermley, uh, basically as soon as I went to training, like a week or two after I got it, I came back, started running the Hermley. I basically didn't touch my uh, three-axis mill at that point anymore. So I listed it for sale. It took a while for it to sale. 
sell. But yeah, I sold that. Was there Still any have- worry about going down to one spindle versus having a backup or anything like that? Not really. Like I said, I didn't really touch that machine anymore once I got Hermley. Like I, I sort of going to five axis kind of like changes the way you think a little bit about making parts. You know, I most of the stuff that I get would be three or more operations on a three axis machine. So, uh, you know, there's basically no reason for me to try to make parts on there. Once I had the, the Hermley working, I guess if I had gotten like a big plate job, it would make sense to do on there, but no, that's okay. <laughs> right. I'm yeah. okay with not taking on the big plate jobs. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that. I uh, I see Nick at B3D. He just got that Datron, and I'm definitely oh, yeah. jealous because like every time I have to deal with any kind of plate, yeah. I'm like, oh, this sucks. Yeah, the and high flow vacuum system that they use is really cool. Uh, yeah, and vacuum ca- or vacuum card and all that yeah. stuff. It's like, oh man, they're like that is a purpose built built tool, and it does it so well. Well, that's really cool. We have some questions. The first one from Thomas Hosford was just about your Hermley, and we, I think we've covered soup to nuts on that thing. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, one from Firmworks that I thought was a great one was, what's your favorite method of gaining new customers? And it sounds like that hasn't happened in a while, but you know, yeah, how, how did uh, you get your first ones, I guess? Uh, all, of my, like, all of my customers are either people that I know or people who heard about me from someone that I know or someone I did work for, right? It's all word of mouth. You know, I'd say, like, the best thing you can do to get customers and keep customers is, like, do good work, communicate well, and, like, just be honest with people. You know, don't try to, like, you know, charge a bunch of money for something that's not worth it. Just be reasonable. Uh, you know, that's all I've done, and it it's, it's working for me. Uh, maybe if I uh, end up, Going full time at my shop, I'll uh, actually advertise and try to get more customers. But up to this point, word of mouth has has worked just fine. Okay. Well, and, and you just brought that up. Where are you working now, and how do you kind of balance both duties? Yeah. So right after I basically signed the papers for the Hermley, my boss from my job in college. Uh, reached out and said, hey, we can hire you now because there was a big hiring freeze from COVID. And I just said yes, because that had sort of been my plan before I bought the Hermley. Uh So I started working there uh, a couple months after Hermley was installed. And the stuff that I do there is, it's kind of just a job shop for school, more or less. They have uh, Haas VF2, a Haas TM1, a couple bridge ports, uh, Hardinge HLVH manual lathe, uh, and a laser cutter. And, you know, that's a full-time job. I'm there from 9 to 5 every day. My boss is really nice, so if I do have to, like, duck out to deal with customers or whatever, you know, it's fine with that. Just get my time in and it works out. But, yeah, I definitely... Uh, I definitely could see myself not working there forever. Uh, there's a lot more potential with my own stuff, and it's a university job, so the pay is, you know, 
not great. I do enjoy it though. I Much, imagine there's decent benefits too. It yeah, seems it has, like most schools do. Most yeah, it, it has great like medical benefits and everything else and four hundred one K and whatnot. And it's like a really low stress environment. Like you know it's it's about as good as it gets for a day job, probably. Pretty much just get to play around with machines all day. So are you so. interacting with students at all? Because I know I had a similar opportunity at uh, the U of A here. And when they interviewed me, they were like, well, yeah, you'll be making parts. But like 90% of the job is just babysitting engineers and making sure they don't put like end mills and drill chucks. And I was like, I don't think that that's right for me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So deal with students. And basically how it works is uh, whether it's an undergrad trying to do something for a class or a extracurricular like FSAE or uh, concrete canoe or rocketry or any of those things or a research student that's trying to get stuff done for their project. Basically, they come to us, they explain what they're trying to make, and we sort of decide if it's more efficient for us to just make it for them or if we should teach them how to do it. And usually it makes more sense for us to just make their parts, but there have been quite a few cases where uh, teaching the student makes sense, especially when they have like a like a bunch of like repetitive stuff. We'll, we'll <laughs> definitely teach them how to do it. Uh, or sometimes, you know, we'll set up the CNC and have them swap parts on it, if that makes sense. I actually really do enjoy teaching people how to like run equipment. I wish it happened more. We just don't have like the space or the tools for it or the time. Uh, it's pretty much me and my boss servicing the entire school. So that's a lot. We just try to yeah. be as efficient as possible. Yeah, I feel like if the opportunity had been presented more like that, I would have been like, like I love teaching and, and you know passing on knowledge and stuff. But the way that they both talked about it, they're like, yeah, you know, it's just babysitting. I'm like, okay, like if it's really that, like I don't want to do this. Thanks. Yeah, I don't. I don't babysit. <laughs> yeah. Definitely did not. Well, that's cool. That, that's that sounds like it's a really rewarding job. Yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, let's see. Tux Garage asked first up favorite ice cream col- or flavor. Cookies and cream. Okay, for sure. Yep. And then favorite and worst part you've made. All right. So my favorite part. Uh, Definitely would be uh, one of the last race car parts that I made, and that was 3D printed titanium headers. Ooh. So the year before, we had done high cut titanium headers, which is a just ridiculous amount of welding when you have uh, a four cylinder engine and you're doing an entire set of headers out of high cut. I think my friend Tim if you're listening, spent over like a thousand hours actually welding these headers. Holy crap. And it's tie. (laughs) So welding tie is like super finicky. If you don't have uh, proper shielding gas, it like, right. Perfect purge. Yeah. Everything has to be perfect. And it was, that was just like unreasonable. So uh, we came up with the idea to try to 3d print them. And we were really lucky to have an alumni uh, at GE's, um, Sort of, I think they call it the Advanced Manufacturing Center, and they had a Arcam EBM, which is electron beam welding uh, metal 3D printer, and uh, that's got to be the coolest 
metal 3D printer out there. Uh, the way it works is it's a vacuum chamber that is elevated to just below the sintering temperature of your material. And then you have an electron beam that sits at the top of this thing. And whenever the electrons are guided and hit you know, the particular areas you're trying to, to melt, it bumps it up over that sintering temperature. And you don't, need, you don't really need that many supports. Uh, you just need like a few millimeters of supports down into the, the powder cake. But you don't need to go down to a build plate or anything. So your parts actually come out not attached to a build plate, which is if you've done any metal 3D printing, you know, you basically need a wire EDM to, to process the parts. So that printer is really cool. Someone else on the team uh, did all of the sort of powertrain related calculations and gave me numbers to work with. And I just spent like a ton of time in SolidWorks trying to, uh, you know, model equal length headers that would fit in the space that we had and work with the 3D printing process and uh, and figure out how to machine them when they were printed. And we did do a little bit of welding to uh, sort of connect uh, bend on the end, but the actual headers themselves were one piece off the machine all the way from the engine to the collector. That's so, uh, a fairly big build volume too. Yeah, and they were less than two pounds. Yeah. That's super um, cool. So I think uh, we were the first people to do that. I'm pretty sure. I, I couldn't find anybody else at the time who had done like single piece headers like that on a printer. That's killer. Yeah, that is super cool. And then what about worst part? Worst part? Oh, I had to make a pinch bolt for an excavator bucket, which was sort of the the part that would uh, you'd go in with like a wrench and spin this bolt to attach buckets and whatnot. And this guy needed it to get his machine working again because the last one he had had snapped. Uh, and just before that, I had accidentally overpressurized the tailstock on my lathe and like crunched the bearing in the, in the center. Oh, no. So uh, the center really wouldn't spin unless you... Uh, I, I had to like grab it with vice grips and like rotate it to get it to spin at all, but it was not uh, spinning smooth anymore. But the way the part was, you needed like a ton of stick out for really long threads, and uh, the threads were just horrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I didn't have another another center. Uh, actually, I couldn't even get that one out. You had to like disassemble the tailstock pretty far to get it out, and. Uh, yeah, I just sort of pressed on and made the part because, you know, I wanted to get this guy's equipment working again. And, like, the part works, but uh, it just hurts to, to send out, uh, you know. Right, stuff that's not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're like, it's, it's technically to print, but, man, is it ugly. Yeah. yeah. I got gotcha you for sure. Uh, going back to the question about favorite method of gaining new customers... Do you remember what your first part was that you made in your co your company? I don't remember the first part that I got paid for, but I do remember the first part that I machined on my machine. Okay. So this is another race car part. Uh, we, uh, 
that year decided to do a under tray for the first time and uh, that basically required like a ton of molds to be made and we didn't really have a great way to do it at pit and uh, at the time the mill we had was a was it tm1 or tm2 i forget which one it was but it was a you know the smaller oz machine so it would have been like just a ton of chopped uh, sections of of old foam to piece this thing together so i had just got this relatively large i think it was like 40 by 20 inch uh three axis machine and you know i thought okay this will be a great first part it's big but it's foam so it's not really gonna hurt anything right so me and my friend logan uh spent like i think it was like four days processing all this foam uh and the first thing i'd done is actually made a vacuum fixture out of a piece of the same foam using like the Pearson uh, uh what is it called the Pearson VPU VPU no I didn't have a VPU yet his gasket material oh yeah okay yeah and I hooked it up to uh just like a automotive vacuum pump which was okay. a very bad decision <laughs> I, I bought a VPU immediately after <laughs> yeah after like 10 minutes my whole shop was filled with like oil mist from this uh from this vacuum pump. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. Never again. But uh, yeah, we basically, you know, stuck foam down to this giant vacuum chuck and machined a ton of mold foam out on it. And it worked. It was pretty brutal. We were using like really long tools. And uh, it was, I say really long, I mean like an eight inch long, half inch diameter <laughs> and mill. Uh, that sounds terrible and really i mean i'm sure it's I, foam so it doesn't matter it was but. foam right but it still chattered uh it was like pretty horrendous sounds that came off of this thing but like i said it worked it wasn't until a couple months later when i first cleaned that machine that i realized the entire coolant tank was now filled with uh residue from this yeah, foam. So I'm sure. Never again will I put foam in a CNC. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've got a pretty, I won't say it's a strict, I mean, for the right customer at the right job, we might break it, but we have a policy of no composites in our machines anymore because yeah. we did a whole bunch of G10 at one point in the Kitamura yeah. and like, man, it was just, it was a nightmare. I mean, we were wearing, it was in like the dead of summer too and we only had a, a swap cooler and so we're wearing you know, respirators and leaning over the table with a vacuum. And it was just like, this is not worth, like there's no amount of money that I can charge that makes this worth the hassle. Yeah. And so no, no, I totally we just agree. Don't, don't do it where it's like, you know, it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm, I'm in the same boat metals and plastics. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. So what about longest running part? What's the longest cycle time you've had on the CC? Longest cycle. So I have a customer who makes, commercial drones and uh, I had basically made a pallet that did uh, half of the parts for that drone per pallet. I think that was like a six hour run. Oh, so. that's nice. Yeah. So you know, it was, I could 
that was one of the parts where you can set it up in the morning before I go to work, start it, you know, come back, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, that's the longest running one. I'm working on parts right now. One of them's got like a three-hour runtime. That's pretty nice. Single part. It's a massive piece of aluminum. Wow. Uh, it's probably the largest part I've done uh, out of aluminum. It's like 19 and a half by 6 by 5 inches. That's big. Yeah, and it's uh, basically a box, so like the inside gets hollowed out. So yeah, I think uh, one of them filled over one 55-gallon drum chips. So I don't know how I'm going to deal with that because that's, that's the largest chip storage I've got. <laughs> I, I feel that pain. We, maybe two or three weeks ago, just finished a run of five of these massive parts and one of the biggest I've made. It, I think it was like 14 and a half by 13 and a half by three and a half or something like that. And yeah, we, we have these like, I think they're 80 gallon trash cans. You know, they're like industrial or not industrial, but like, you know, ones you roll out for the, the garbage truck kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. I and mean, we filled it was between that part and then one of the parts that fit in there was also like a big hog out and we must have filled i think four 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 or maybe all five that we have within like a few days yeah. or like a week and we're like great so we got to go do a chip run again this is fantastic yeah but it was fun you know we learned a lot and made good money so can't complain yeah. too much i think i'm gonna need to get one of the uh the dump hoppers Mm-hmm. They have. Uh, it's probably that's going to be my next purchase. I think all the brochures for the C two fifty show one under the chip conveyor. So oh I, yeah, 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 yeah. They had them at uh, Milwaukee. I don't know if I would get theirs. I don't think it's anything special. No, but, no, no. Something tells yeah. me there's a premium for the the white color and the logo. <laughs> yeah, I would just get some dump hopper. <laughs> yeah, you know, for sure. Well, that brings us to shop news. Well, and have, oh, go for um, it. Have you seen their uh, chip extraction system they have in Germany? No, you I don't watch think so. the uh, the Saunders tour of Hermley. I gets in there. Did, but I must have missed it. Is it it's like got, the? Because there was another tour that Smarter Every Day did of uh, some robot company ULA, I think, where like all of the chips were like dumped into basically a river of coolant that like went back to like a main thing yeah uh it's not quite like that basically from what i can understand it's a air moving system and it sort of collects the chips right out of the chip conveyor and sucks them to presumably a large dumpster somewhere else in their facility oh you never have to worry about uh, you know dumping your chip bins out Oh, I'll have to go back and watch that. That's super cool. (laughs) Yeah, I'll send you the clip from Smarter Every Day because it was a similar philosophy. And and I want to say that Milterra does something similar with their robot cell. But yeah, the ULA, like it was like these like channels of coolant that came off their giant mills that they they were basically machining sections of the tube. The I've seen that video. Yeah, it was nuts. But like, I love giant scale chip solutions like that pretty hard to like uh fathom that you know right yeah they're dealing with (laughs) well and then just dealing with that many chips like i i you know i might spend a lifetime and not machine as many chips as they make in like a day or two yeah oh boy well yeah that brings us on to shop news and new things what's going on new i I know i've seen i think on your website that you've had some products every now and again 
that you've done? I don't really have any products. I've thought about things, but nothing has really uh, made it past sort of just in my head or maybe one prototype. I don't really have time to like develop a product. You know, it's like between my day job and, and job shop stuff, I, uh, I just don't have time to sell a product. I, I product. totally understand. I, I've been in the exact same boat. And, and you know what? I'm full-time now, and I still don't have time yeah. to develop my own product. So I totally understand. Well, a- anything else, dude? Any new cool purchases or you know, new ways of programming or anything like that? Not really, honestly. I'm kind of just you know, operating at this point. Uh, the last thing that I bought was a fiber laser engraver. That was a okay. couple months ago. One of those um, Chinese ones that yeah, everybody that has. One. This one has like the, it's enclosed, so you don't have to wear glasses or anything like that. Oh, that's nice. Um, that's really nice. And it's got, uh, what do they call it? MOPA mm-hmm. is what they call it. So you can do like color engraving on titanium, which kind of blew my mind when I saw it. I was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, you can like draw pictures on metal and then that's it. You don't need a, like, you know, it just works. That's epic. Um, so did you buy that cool. due to customer demand, or was that just kind of like, if they build it, if you build it, they'll, they will come kind of thing? It's or? definitely an if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> which has kind of been my approach to everything so far. Uh, but Seems like yeah, it's working no, out. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've used it on a few parts now. Um, I like it. It's really cool. If I do develop my own products, that's going to be like an essential part putting my logo and part numbers and serial numbers on stuff. Like it's not a better way. Probably. Speaking of your logo and your name, where does Z nine come from? Yeah. So Z nine is kind of just a, a play on words of my name. Uh, my full name is Zoltan nine Glasso. Uh, nine is spelled like the German word for no. Okay. N E I N. So it's just Zoltan nine Z nine. Very cool. That's, uh, that's where that came from. Very, very cool. Oh, and actually, before we get on to research, what work holding do you use on your Hermley? Pretty much all fifth axis stuff. I've got a single uh, 96 millimeter rock lock base that uh, stays on the machine pretty much all the time. My, my machine came with the 450 millimeter table, which is 450 millimeters diameter uh, with two sort of flats on the top and bottom or front and back and I opted to get the smaller 320 millimeter table when I bought the machine and you can just swap them out which is pretty cool so yeah I really do like the smaller table there were definitely situations with the big one where I would hit the spindle at like C90 and A90 but with the small one there's like a ton of clearance so yeah I've got a single rock lock on that uh, all of the small stuff, I'll put a, a steel rock lock riser on it, which just gives you more clearance. It's not really necessary if you're only going to 90 degrees, but if you start tilting beyond 90, uh, the riser definitely helps sometimes. But I've got some dovetail fixtures, a couple 5-inch vices, uh, one of the 3-inch vices, some like custom rock lock stuff that I've made. I've got a Pearson style vacuum fixture with the the vac unit <laughs> um how do you fix- end up using that because i imagine the five axis stuff 
yeah, I imagine you have to like limit yourself to a certain number of rotations before yeah. you rip so, that out. <laughs> think i posted on my instagram about it if not i will post there's there's a i have the regulator just magnet uh magnet to the right side of the machine and there's a small passageway you can snake things through uh sort of below the doors in the front and i go up kind of around the a-axis support and then around the c-axis like once or twice and the 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 vac unit, like on the extra clamping that they have on the trunnion, mm-hmm. just use one of those bolts, uh, and that seemed to work pretty well. You definitely, I mean, you can't like spin the table around, but you can reach, you can reach, you know, 360 degrees of the part easily. But usually with the vacuum stuff, it's going to be flat plate anyway, right? So, you know, probably don't need to spin the part around. Like I've done round parts where you spin the table and treat it like a lathe, but you're not going to do that with a vacuum part. Okay. Um, and then the glue fixture stuff that Saunders figured out, I use that all the time. Um, Same. Yeah, it's it's such a good prototyping, yeah. you know, fix. Like, you're like, I, I don't want to dedicate any time to a fixture. Yep. I don't want to do vacuum. I'll just knock it out real quick. I'll face a piece of stock and the vice, and then I'll stick stuff down to it. Yeah, so I've got, like, a, a rock lock, just chunk of aluminum, right? And I just throw that in there, and it it's, it's flat. Uh, I generally don't machine it. Unless I have to, but usually just like a little acetone will clean it up. It's fine. And it's repeatable. Repeatable enough with the rock lock that you know, being perfectly square is, isn't really a concern. Is there anything you wish you had to add to your work holding? I need to come up with a way to hold multiple vices in a row for, for longer stuff. It's kind of hard with the one single rock lock base to do that. I haven't really decided what the best way is yet, but I definitely, uh, there's definitely parts where be able to, you know, clamp, you know, closer to the ends rather than just in the middle, uh, would make them much easier to do. I, I actually ended up doing like sort of cycling it through the vise, uh, just because it would have been unreasonable amount of stick out if you were to just clamp it in the middle. So, yeah, that's uh, that's something I got to figure out. Okay, very cool. Well, that brings me to the last question I ask every guest, which is, what did you research this week? I have been trying to figure out the best way to redo my patio at my house. Oh, okay. I got to, like, tear out the old one. I'm probably going to save the pavers from it, but I want to do, I need to re-level the area, you know, put down the proper sub-base and gravel and sand and everything uh, so i've just been like looking into that to figure out how to do that properly uh, okay have you ever I, done anything like that nah <laughs> no <laughs> not at all but, uh yeah the, the current patio is like sloped towards the house so water kind of collects right up against that edge and uh the part of the house that it's up against is like a enclosed porch i guess you'd call it and the floor is always kind of damp in there. Oh, and I okay. suspect it's because the patio is just sort of seeping all the water right into that room. So that's. Uh, I'm also probably going to do a fire pit at the same time. Hey, you might as well, right? Well, it's already process. dug up. Yeah. yeah. So 
Sounds like you got your work cut out for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. Well, Zoltan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's yeah. been great to get to pick your brain. I know selfishly, I think I partially invited you on just to pick your brain about your machine because it's definitely high on my list, but it's been really cool to just see what goes into, you know, running one and, and growing a business like that. Yeah. Yeah. What, what other machines have you been considering? See, I'm not sure. Cause like I, like you said, I was looking at maybe like a DVF 5000, but then I have talked to a few people now that have said there's been some serious, I don't know if they're quality issues or it, it just seems like I, I, I think there's two or three people on Instagram that have all had their machines down at the same time. And they're mm-hmm. like, you know, down on and off for a couple months and it's like i if i'm gonna spend you know that kind of money i i I don't quarter mil plus right (laughs) right yeah i mean they're they're not cheap machines this is not buying another speedio this is three and a half speedios or something like that you know it's like so yeah it's that was one i know a friend just showed me i think it was a hyundai wea one that looked pretty interesting It, it actually the construction looks very similar to the C250 as far as like with the A axis suspended from twin uprights and all of that. Uh, the problem is, is that the local distributor is not my favorite. Like he never gets back to me and just kind of bugs me with sales stuff instead of like giving me what I actually want. Sure. Oh, I really, I guess it comes down to like the C250 or maybe a Micron E series machine. Okay. Uh, the only issue with that is I'm really, I've heard poor things about Micron service in this area. Like, Hermley, I know we have two local techs or relatively local in Phoenix because there's a company in Phoenix. It just got bought out. It used to be called SA, but like they make stuff for Intel and they, okay. oh man, I want to say they have like 60 Hermleys or something. I mean, (laughs) they bought, I think, 20 of them last year or something like that. Like, I was pretty much told, like, if you want to get a Hermley this year, you're SOL because (laughs) all of their stock dedicated to this region is gone. I was like, cool, 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 cool. But they have a couple of Microns, and I'm pretty sure that that's the only reason we even have a Micron dealer around here for the most part. Uh, So that's kind of it. Like, I'm kind of... I was very disappointed. Brother came out with their U500, and like everybody was kind of hoping that that was going to be simultaneous fifth. It's not. It's just four plus one again, and it's like, oh, okay, that you know that doesn't accomplish any more goals than I you know than I could have with the M series from Brother. So yeah, the like four plus one versus simultaneous stuff. My thoughts are, uh, you don't need it very often. Whenever you do need the simultaneous, like reach down and do something there's just not another way right well and really i i mean i feel like i'll I'll probably need it like once a year but what it shows to me like a machine that can do simultaneous fifth shows to me that it's built with that in mind and so it'll have you know tcpc built in and like very well sorted it'll have you know dynamic work offsets it'll have all of that stuff built in and ready to go versus like brother has a a sort of TCP or not even TCPC. It's like a, it is like a dynamic work offset, but it requires an extra board. And like the code is kind of weird the way they do it. So yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm right now. The C two fifty is the only one that hasn't unchecked the box, I guess. 
is the best way to put it. Because I, I was thinking about like a DVF 5000. I was like, well, you know, they're pretty well priced and I've heard you can get them for pretty cheap. And, you know, they they come in hide and hide if you want. It's like, oh, you know, let's check in the definitely, boxes. Definitely get the hide and hide if you get a DVF. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I, I don't want a Fanuc mill. Uh, it's the same reason that I haven't looked at Matsura at all. Is like, and I keep telling my dealer that my my uh, Yamazan salesman. It's like, man, I I love you guys. I love your service. I wish I could support you by buying a fifth Exus from you, but I don't want Fanuc. I just don't. I can tell so. you, if you get a C two fifty, you won't regret it. It's, uh, it's like it's a awesome machine I, I definitely appreciate it yeah i'm we're headed out to imts this year so i'm for sure going to pick everybody's brain at the booth and you know walk the floor maybe there's a, a company that i'm forgetting about that uh, you're, that has a machine that would fit the bill perfectly but yeah so far it's checking all the right boxes and it seems like it's kind of a, a really well-sorted lower cost step into that pool because it's really not that much more expensive than a dvf seems to be at least list you know i I know you can get some pretty killer deals on dusons but list for list they're not too far apart so we'll see we'll see you know it's all it would require a move anyway for us so it's much more than just a machine how how big is your space a thousand square feet I'm also in a thousand square feet. Yeah. So we've got three machines in there right now. I've got uh, just the two. Yeah. It, some it, manual stuff. We also only have a hundred amps of three phase. And so ah. we are out of power. Yeah. I was going to say the Herm lays a hundred amps or right. even a little more. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the brothers are 30 a piece. Our compressor is like technically 30 something. We, we are over and above you know thankfully nothing actually uses what it's rated for but uh yeah it w- we want a nicer space anyway like right now i think less than a quarter of the shop is office and i'd really like a little bit more for inspection and shipping and all of that stuff so we'll see it's it you know the future is bright and there's lots of possibilities we just gotta figure out where we're going next cool well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And real quick, Patreon thank yous before we go. Chris, thanks for joining the Patreon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And I'll be back next week.